Tonight's reading is from Judges 11, 29 through 36. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Oror to the neighborhood of Minith, twenty cities, and as far as Abel-Kuramim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good evening. Welcome to Grace Downtown. My name is Jason. I am the staff pastor here at Grace, and it is great to be back with all of you. I wanted to take just a minute before we jump into the text that we are looking at tonight to thank everyone uh, for the time of rest and worship and play that I had on my sabbatical. It was a sacrifice for multiple uh, people to make it happen. And um, it was very significant in my life and in my family's life. And I pray long-term it'll be significant in the life of our church as well, that our family had that time to worship, rest, and play. So thank you. Everybody picked up a little bit of extra slack, uh, volunteers, staff, elders in training, elders, but no one more than Bo. So thank you to Bo for all that he did. He does not do it for the applause, but we can give it to him anyway. Um, I have made a promise to my wife that um, I will keep the analogies and the metaphors from the hiking and the yard work and the time with kids to a minimum. So I make that vow now to you. I did a lot of hiking. I had a lot of time with my kids. I, I worked with my hands in the yard and there are metaphors aplenty, uh, but I'll try to sprinkle them over the course of years instead of hitting you with all of them tonight. So I make that vow to you tonight. Uh, one more thing, one more item of business before we jump into the text tonight. La uh, two weeks ago, we had a members meeting, and in that members meeting, uh, an announcement that our church made is that um, for a long time you've heard that Grace Community Church is one church in two locations. We have our downtown Iowa City campus, which you're at now, and then our North Liberty, Liberty campus uh, that meets on Sunday mornings. And you heard at our members meeting a couple of weeks ago, and the members got an email this week uh, communicating that as a church, the future of Grace Community Church is autonomous church plants. Uh, the idea is that we would move to be an autonomous church and that future church plants would be autonomous from one another. There's a few reasons for that. The primary one is to reach more people. We've become convinced that we can be more contextualized to reach more people, more effectively, more efficiently, um, to reach the people groups that God has called us to. This fall, we're planting a church in Amana, and if you are trying to reach people in North Liberty and in Amana and downtown Iowa City by doing all the same things, 
you're doing it wrong. So the future is autonomous church plants for Grace Community Church. That means that we are on a trajectory to become an autonomous church as well. Meaning that we will not be directly connected by our elders or our finances to Grace and North Liberty. They'll still be friends. Uh, we'll still do things with them, but we'll be uh, autonomous from them. Part of that autonomy will look like us joining a denomination or a church planting network. So we're affiliated with someone and we have some financial help as well. But the primary reason is to reach more people. There's also some size dynamics at play. A lot of the goodness and the community that we experience here at Grace Downtown is because we have one service. And last week I was able to go around and talk to everyone except two poor people that I did not make it to. But there are some size dynamics. When you grow bigger as a church you lose some sense of community and mission. And so autonomous churches that can be more nimble and serve communities is where we feel led to head as a church. This trajectory that we're on to be an autonomous church will take a while. There's a lot to do. We have to um, talk to all of you about why we're doing this and how we're going to do this. There's things to be determined still. We still haven't joined a church planting network or a denomination. So there's work to be done, but we wanted to let you all know that we are on that trajectory. And Joe and Jeff and I, as the downtown elders, have made a commitment that as specifics come up, we're going to share them with all of you as soon as we possibly can. We want to keep you up to date, fill you in, give you opportunities to ask questions. We're not going to make any decisions without talking with all of you and getting input from all of you. Um, there will be more to come on this in August. In August, our sermons will be done with judges. We'll start Mark Labor Day weekend. But the sermons in August, the first weekend in August, we'll be celebrating our 10th anniversary. So we'll have a special sermon where we take a look at God's faithfulness in the past, what he's doing now, and what he may do in the future. And then um, those next three weeks in August, we're going to be talking about the mission that God has called us to and what our people group is. Who are we trying to reach? And why are we going autonomous? It's not an easy thing to do. Why are we taking this leap of faith, and who are we trying to reach by doing it? We're going to take three weeks to cover that. So just wanted to give you that info as we jump in here. Would you pray with me as we get started? Heavenly Father, we look to you. We need a word from you tonight. God, words of comfort, words of hope, words of your power, words of promise. Words that comfort, but also words that may unsettle. God, we look to you to do the work tonight. We ask that you would speak through your word. God, we want to be people of your word. It's the one thing that we can stand on. And so we trust you tonight to speak from your word as we open it together. God, I pray that you would speak and, and take my humble words and use them uh, for your glory and for your good. And God, um, pray that you would move in power here tonight. Do abundantly more than we could ever ask, think, imagine. God, we pray that you would be at work in the nursery with the kids, that they would know your love at a young age. God, we pray that you would be in work, at work uh, in those that are not here tonight. God, I pray that you would be at work in each one of us as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever made a vow with God? Let's maybe take the word vow out of it. It's kind of an antiquated word or something that we connect with weddings. And let's just say a deal. Have you ever made a deal 
with God. Today we will see in Judges that our next judge that we come to in Judges chapter 11 makes a vow to God and there is disastrous results. Disastrous results for him personally, for his daughter, for his people, for the nation, for God's people. There are disastrous consequences of this vow. And unfortunately, just as usual, when we open the word of God, we see more of ourselves than we hope to see. So if you haven't already, if you would open with me to Judges chapter 11, um, we are going to read some of it together. I'm going to summarize some of it for you. It's a very long chapter with lots of names and details. And so we're going to kind of skip around. But I want us to begin by just getting an overview of what's happening in this narrative. You heard the climax of the story. Maggie just read it for us. But there's other things that happen that help us kind of draw into the text and, and see what God is trying to say to us today. So let's read Judges 11 verses 1 through 3 as we meet this Jephthah. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So we're introduced here to Jephthah. You hear the story here. He is kicked out of his father's house. He is exiled and banished. And the only friends he has is these quote-unquote worthless fellows. Worthless fellows has some connotations to it already. These are not great guys maybe, or at least not well looked upon, but it's even more vivid when we know the Hebrew word that's used for worthless. Have you ever had to bail water out of something, like a boat or your basement? Um, Have you ever had to use a receptacle to get water out? I definitely have. At our old home in downtown Iowa City, we were at the low point of the neighborhood, so we got all the rain runoff. And then there was a sewer drain at the end of the road that would get bunched up with ice and snow. So the first thaw of the season, the water would hit that dam and take the path of least resistance, which was our driveway. And then when they set our driveway, it didn't set correctly. It's supposed to tilt away from the house to keep water out of your house. Ours tilted towards the house. And then we had a sliding glass door. This is a perfect recipe for water in your basement. So there were multiple times where we didn't see the first thaw coming and we woke up to find water, ice cold, dirty water in our basement. My wife's birthday is in February, so one year it was on her birthday. Not a fun thing to do on your birthday. But in my panic, one of the first things I did was I can bail out the water. So I got a pail and I filled it full of water and I went and I dumped it over the fence and I came back and the water was even higher than when I started. Gallons and gallons of water were coming down the street. All the neighborhood was melting and it was coming into our house. Bailing water was not going to help. Imagine, think about how futile that is, but then imagine trying to bail water and you use the bucket, but there's a hole in the bucket, it has no bottom. So the water just goes straight through. 
The Hebrew word that's used here for worthless men is the word for empty bucket. (laughs) The idiom or the word that's being used here, the turn of phrase, is that these were worthless men, meaning that people saw no value in them. The root is also the root of the word vanity that we get in Ecclesiastes, a vapor, a wind, something that looks like it matters, but in the end does not. So Jephthah and these men were rejected and they were exiled. I spend time on that because it's vivid, but also it's going to be important here pretty soon. So as we continue in the story of Jephthah, I'll summarize the next few verses. The Ammonites come after Gilead, which is Jephthah's home community, his people, the place where his dad is in charge. And the Ammonites come and attack Gilead. The elders of Gilead say, maybe Jephthah and these worthless fellows aren't so worthless after all. Because we read in the beginning that he's a mighty warrior. He's a strong dude and they need his help. The Ammonites are bigger than those from Gilead. So they go and they ask him to come. And Jephthah rightly says, didn't you just hate me and exile me from my own people? So he makes a deal. He says, I will come and fight for you, but I have to be in charge. He wants his rightful authority back. He wants his rightful power back. And so here we see his first foul, his first deal. He says, make me your leader and I will fight for you. Then we see our longest section as Jephthah goes with the elders of Gilead and these warriors and he goes and he tries to make a deal with the Ammonites and the Ammonites say, this is our land, you need to get off of it. And here's what he has to say to them. Look with me at verses 12 through 16. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, what do you have against me that you've come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah and said, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jebok and to the Jordan, now therefore restore it peaceably. He's saying, give me my land back. This is my land. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king and said, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea. So Jephthah says, No, you're getting the story all wrong. I know the story. We know the story. We've looked at the rest of the Old Testament. And he says, My people came through the desert by way of the Red Sea, and you're telling the story wrong. Then he goes on for many verses to lay it all out for him. He tells the whole history of Israel coming through the desert, coming into the promised land, and all the land that they owned throughout the whole time to prove to the Ammonites, nope, this is my people's rightful land. Then at the end of this monologue, he goes on remembering, telling them the story in verse 27. We read, I therefore have not sinned against you, And you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. So Jephthah recounts the story, but the king of the Ammonites doesn't listen to him. And so they go to battle. Then... We come to our passage that Maggie read for us tonight, Jephthah's vow. 
So Jephthah has to lead his people into battle. And he says, Lord, I know you can win this battle. But if you win this battle for me, when I go home, the first thing that comes out of my house, I will dedicate it to you and I will sacrifice it to you to thank you for the, the power that you showed me and the victory you gave me. This is deal number two. Vow number two. He recounts God's faithfulness and then says, God, you're powerful enough to win this battle. And if you do, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to put to death, I'm going to give as a sacrifice whatever comes out of my house first. I'm supposed to be clicking this thing and putting stuff up on the screen. Sorry, I haven't been here in a while. Um, There's some verses that we're going through here. And then we come to the climax of the story in verse 37. We'll start in 36. And she said to him, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months that I may go up and down the mountains and weep for my virginity. I and my companions. So she said, so he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days of the year. Jephthah makes a deal. Whatever comes out of my house first, I will make that sacrifice to you. And then we read here, his daughter is the first to come out. And we read their exchange and he puts her to death. He makes the sacrifice. He holds up his end of the quote unquote deal. When his daughter walks out of the house, there's a couple of things in the Hebrew that really point to this being the climax of the story. Two things. Excuse me. First, we see the word behold. Behold, in verse 34, behold, his daughter came out. Anytime we say behold, we're supposed to stop, take note, and really think about what this means. This is the climax of the whole story. Then, in the Hebrew construction of this entire story, it is told for this to be the pinnacle. You know when there's foreshadowing in a story, in a movie, in in a great Uh, work of literature and there's foreshadowing and then you know it's the climax because it's been foreshadowing it the whole time. That's what the Hebrew language does here. This story is tragic, but it also should not surprise us. As we see so many heroes in the Bible who we may have learned when we were a kid the heroic things they did, but then we see the dirty underbelly of some of the things that they actually did. But also, the book of Judges has been preparing us for judges like Jephthah. Let's look at a few summary verses that foreshadowed a judge like Jephthah. 
in chapter 2, we read when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So they're supposed to go in and possess the land. They worship God. Joshua has restored the nation of Israel to where they're supposed to be. He's ushered them into the promised land. But look what happens with the next generation. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. Joshua and his generation, faithful, entered the promised land, took the baton from Moses. His generation had been wicked. They returned to the Lord. They didn't tell their kids. They failed to remember and tell their kids the story of what God had done. That's the beginning of Judges. In Judges 13, we read this indictment. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. We'll talk about that next week when we talk about Samson. And then the summary, not to spoil it, but at the end of Judges, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, I don't know how much you've heard about Judges, the book of Judges, or studied the book of Judges, it tends to be one that we avoid because it's bloody and it's weird. And we think we could probably just skip that and be just fine. When we think of Judges, sometimes we think that God sent Judges to judge other nations. Well, it's a double meaning. Yes, they were great warriors that often defeated other nations, but they end up judging also the people of God or bringing judgment on the people of God. And that's what we see in this tragic story of Jephthah and his daughter. The story leaves us unsatisfied. The story leaves us with questions. This story has never been taught in Sunday school before. In fact, when I came back from sabbatical, June 26th, first day I looked at the preaching schedule and what I was supposed to be preaching on, First one out of the gate, Jephthah. Like, great. Who's Jephthah? This story should leave us unsatisfied. This story should leave us confused. This story should leave us longing for more. This story should leave us looking for a new hero, a new kind of judge that judges with justice. The story of this unholy sacrifice should leave us thirsty for more. See, God's people need more than Jephthah. They need more than Joshua and Moses. They need more than judges and prophets and priests and kings. They need more than just the right book, the right job, the right spouse, the right sabbatical, the right pastor coming back from sabbatical. They need something more, something greater. Just like Jephthah, we look to these other things to bring us power. So, what is the application for us today? Hopefully there is one, right? 
It's easy to read a story like this and say, what a bunch of barbarians and say, can I read about Jesus now? But there's plenty of application here for us. And I kept it simple and kept the same headings that I gave Jephthah. And I want us to think about how we have experienced some of what Jephthah experienced, but how we need something more. So first, we're rejected. Jephthah and these worthless men, these men, these buckets with no bottoms that were worthless, they were rejected. This is something that, a motif that we see throughout scripture, people that man rejects, God raises up, people that are strong in the world's eyes are seen as weak by God or vice versa. We see this happening throughout scripture. For some of us, rejection is literal. We have been rejected by people that we know and love and we've been in intimate relationships with. And it's foundational. It's part of who we are. We feel rejected by someone, not as a metaphor, but in real life. For followers of Jesus, this is happening all over the world right now and always has been for all of human history. There have been those that have been rejected just by following the name of Christ. It's either happening right now to you, it has happened in your past, or it will happen in the future. Sometimes we face micro rejections just when we feel slighted or overlooked or someone else takes credit for something we did. Or there's big rejections that leave us reeling or we're still trying to get over as middle-aged adults. We take these things and we think that that rejection is also how God sees us. We may have had an irritable, hard-to-please earthly father, so we must have an irritable heavenly father. Older siblings or authority figures in our life treated us poorly, so we must have a cruel and unjust God. Maybe following Jesus has led to ostracization in your environment, wherever you work or play or go to school or even in your home, and left you feeling misunderstood. Leaves us wondering, am I taking this Jesus thing too seriously? So we are rejected. We feel the sense of loss, the sense of disconnection from where we're supposed to be, this disconnection from home. And ultimately, it can leave us feeling rejected by God. This quote from Ruth Haley Barton from her book on spiritual disciplines called Sacred Rhythm said, the truest thing about us is our desperate need for God. Our desperate need for God is the truest thing about not only us, but all humanity. We have a deep need to be reunited with the one who made us. So we can relate to Jephthah in this way. We are rejected. Next, We are hired. We have a job to do. We have a job that we've been given. Jephthah makes this vow, this deal, and offers to work for these guys. It's kind of a shady arrangement to begin with. We are hired for a job. Have you ever had a really good boss? It sticks with you. I didn't see a lot of head nods and amens. That's a sad indictment on our culture. Hopefully you've had a good boss or two. Hopefully you are a good boss if you're a boss. I have been very fortunate to have mostly good bosses. 
um, all but one job, basically. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But I've had really good bosses, bosses that serve, bosses that set the example. I've had two lead pastors in my life, two pastors to me in my life, which is pretty amazing that I've only had two pastors in my life. One was Doug Brown in Kansas City, Missouri, and one is Brooke Simpson that you all know and love, I think. Um, But I don't know what he said when I was gone, but hopefully you love him too. Um, Both of them have made a, a commitment at church on Sunday to park the farthest away from the building. I don't know if you've seen those churches that have a parking reserved for pastor sign. They were like, forget that. I'm going to park as far away from the building as I can. I'm going to give everyone else the preference. That's a good boss, right? That's a great boss. Have you ever had a bad boss? Raise your hand. Yeah. A little, oh, Melissa just gave me a look. I don't know what that means. Try not to think about that the rest of the sermon. Um, I've had a bad boss. One bad situation. I know I'm lucky. I'm not complaining, but I did have one bad situation where I worked Uh, For a small business, there ended up being this weird kind of love triangle thing between the three owners, and then they tried to expand too quickly, and the whole thing fell apart, and it was not a fun situation at all. There's a big difference between having a good boss and a bad boss, and it can make your working environment very different depending on your boss. Well, God, our Heavenly Father, our Creator, has given us work to do, and he has given us gifts to accomplish the purposes he's called us to do. He has work for us to do. The spiritual gifts we have, the story you have, the strengths you have, the education you have, the means that you have, he has given you those things, and he has a job for you to do. He has work for us as a church He has told us to take what he has created and create culture out of it and do good with it to his glory and our good and for great joy for mankind. We've been given work to do. So we need to remember what God has done. I entitled Jephthah's section where he recounts God's faithfulness as Jephthah remembered. Did Jephthah really remember what God had done? Did Joshua really remember what God had done? Usually if I remember something great, I tell my kids about it. I told them a story yesterday that I told them a few times. It's a dad thing. The older you get, you just start telling stories over and over again. It's just a thing. When I have something good happen to me and I remember it, I tell other people about it. So why didn't Joshua's kids know of God's faithfulness? Why didn't Jephthah live a different kind of life and know that he didn't have to make a vow with the God of the universe who had delivered his people, who had had mercy on his people for generations, yet Jephthah thinks he needs to make a vow and strong-arm God into doing what he wants him to do. Jephthah may remember intellectually, but has not made the few inches travel down to his heart. He doesn't really believe what God has done. He doesn't rest in it. This vow that he made was stupid and also unnecessary. He didn't have to do it. He said himself, God, I know you're powerful and you can win this battle, but just in case, let's make a deal. 
look for this pattern in scripture. It's in just about every chapter of Judges and it basically is in every chapter of the Old Testament. This pattern of God's people hoard after other gods and they did not remember the Lord's faithfulness. We do the same thing. We have seen God's victory. We have seen the work of the spirit. We have seen what he can do in our lives. We have seen what he can do in our church. We have seen what he can do in our city. We have seen what he can do in our world. Yet we forget. We cognitively know the story. And yet we still doubt God's goodness, his power, his plan, this cycle over and over again. Josh mentioned this, that we've seen this in Judges, this cycle of wanting God's goodness and wanting God's power and wanting God's plan, but forgetting he's already done so much. So we make vows and deals with God. We do not understand where real victory and real power comes from. So we turn to shiny things to give us victory and make us happy. Or we make deals with God and say, if you'll do this, I'll live this kind of life. We need to remember God's faithfulness and what he has done. That's the first thing that we're going to do on August 6th at our 10th anniversary service is we're going to remember his faithfulness and what he has done over 10 years here among his people. We vow. Earlier I said, have you ever made a vow with God? And I said, let's take the word vow out and say, have you made a deal with God? So let's talk about this a little bit. Maybe this will help you. At the heart of legalism is vows and deals with God. At the heart of legalism, the idea that if I just obey God, if I just do all the right things, if I look holy and spiritual, particularly to other people, particularly to church folk, then I can experience the power and the presence and the plan of God. Legalism thinks if I do this, then maybe God will hold up the other, his end of the deal, and maybe I will fill in the blank. Have a purposeful life, have good kids, find a spouse, have a better marriage, whatever it is. At the heart of legalism is vows and deals with God. Paul lays this out in 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Here's what he tells us. And he's talking to a culture in the first century, but he's also talking about us. We know this from verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Hello. Ungrateful unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Sounds like judges. Sounds like the first century. Sounds like the year 2023. These things have the appearance of godliness but denying its power. You should avoid such people. There is a kind of life 
that looks like the rest of the world when we're outside of the church or outside of the community of believers. And then inside the community of believers looks spiritual, has a form of godliness, but it denies the very power of God. Jephthah made a vow to get God's power and he lost God's power and his daughter. Vows and deals try to call down the power of God, but they actually rely on the power of man. The work of the spirit through a life of holiness and an understanding of the gospel is what unleashes the power of God in our lives. A life of holiness, a life resting in the gospel, that unleashes the power of God. But instead we make vows and deals with God and we sacrifice the good things he has given us that we're supposed to steward and bring him glory with. We sacrifice them on the altar of selfish idolatry and the power of man. This leaves us in need. This leaves us wanting more, not just from a judge and judges. It leaves us wanting more for our lives. It leaves us wanting more for our family. It leaves us wanting more for our church, our community, and our world. I don't have time for forms of godliness that deny God's power. We don't have time for that. There is a world full of bad news, darkness, and sin that is in desperate need of good news, and we've got it. In order to experience the power of God, we need a holy sacrifice. Jephthah made an unholy sacrifice, an unholy vow that led to an unholy sacrifice. We need a holy sacrifice. Open up your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, and we'll start in verse 7. The climax of the story of Jephthah was his daughter coming out, and it went into great detail of her time of preparation before she was sacrificed. Here's the climax of God's story, right here in the middle. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. We make deals and vows with God to try to call down his power in our life. And because of those vows and because of those deals and because we're no better than Jephthah, we deserve to be separated from God. We deserve nothing from God. We deserve to be rejected by God. But Jesus, though his voice knew no violence, Though he was perfect in every way, though his generation didn't consider him, they rejected him. He laid down his life for you and for me because of the dumb vows and deals we make to try to have a happy life, to try to call down the power of God, to try to have a form of godliness. But he gives his life for us. He just gives more grace. He is the righteous and just judge, and he is the holy and perfect sacrifice that you need and that I need. And his work in our life and his spirit's indwelling is what gives us the power of God. It's not us making vows and deals with God, but it's resting in the finished work of what Christ has done for us. In just a moment, we're going to sing together. We're going to close our service singing a song that says, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe, Jesus, that you are better. You're better than all these shiny things. You're better than all other judges. You're better than all of my righteousness. You're better than all of my forms of godliness. Jesus, you are better.